0: You're listening to Ocean Currents, a podcast brought to you by NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary. This radio program was originally broadcast on KWMR in Point Reyes Station, California. Thanks for listening. Welcome to Ocean Currents. My name is Jennifer Stock. I'm the host for this show, which is part of the West Marin Matters series. The first, or every Monday of the month, there is a topic relating to our local environment or economy here in West Marin. And Ocean Currents is always the first Monday of every month. On this show, we dive into the, all sorts of topics relating to the big blue ocean on our planet. Everything from research, science, exploration, conservation, expeditions, and adventurers as well. Anything about that blue planet we will be talking about on this show. So thank you for joining us on this uh, nice, cold, wintry day. And today's topic is is somewhat difficult in the sense of solutions, and I'm hoping to, to hear a lot more about the topic today with our, with our guest. If you've been out in what you think is wilderness or a quiet, natural area away from civilization, surrounded by nature... And then all of a sudden, you start hearing loud airplanes flying overhead, motorcycles zooming by, boats in the distance, or even seasonal guns going off. This is the sort of thing we will be talking about today, ambient noise. However, today we're talking about it in the ocean. And if you've ever spent time underwater in relatively shallow depths, you know there's a lot of natural, wonderful sounds to hear, from the lapping of the water itself to snapping shrimp, some fish, Dolphins, whales, all sorts of wonderful sounds, as well as other huge natural sounds of underwater earthquakes that we probably couldn't hear in the shallow waters. But as civilization has advanced on our planet, so has our technology. And from recreational boating to shipping and general maritime commerce to oil exploration and drilling and and naval sonar, uh, sound in the ocean has increased steadily in the last few decades. And my guest today has been studying this quite a bit. So we'll be talking about how sound is measured in the ocean, how scientists use it as a tool, and uh, what's whether the trend's going on right now. My guest today, uh, joining us by phone, is Dr. John Hildebrand, who is joining us from San Diego. John, welcome. You're live on the air.
1: Thank you, Jennifer.
0: John is a professor of oceanography with Scripps Institution of Oceanography in San Diego. In addition to overseeing graduate students and teaching classes on bioacoustics, John has contributed to over 100 publications on topics ranging from acoustic wave propagation to passive acoustic monitoring for marine mammals. His recent research has focused on the use of acoustic techniques for marine mammal population census and the impact of anthropogenic, anthropogenic Noise on Marine Mammals. So welcome, John. Thank you for joining us today.
1: Thank you for having me. And, you know, I was up um, and I visited with uh, the Cordell Bank uh, Sanctuary folks. must have been two years ago. I think they invited me up to give a talk about ambient noise.
0: That's exactly how I got your name because uh-huh. I was at that talk, and I thought, oh, John would be a great guest to really discuss this issue broadly. So it's, this is a really difficult topic, and I think... For some of us that may not be that familiar with sound and science in general, I'm wondering if you can just give us a real brief overview about what sound is, sound waves and how it's different in air versus in water.
1: Well, you know that um, you know we all have ears and, <laughs> and you know it's 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 not the most important sense for us and people are are very visually oriented. You know, it's much easier to get a a, a detailed sense of your surrounding by by looking than by listening now um, and that's just you know a matter of our environment but but on the other hand we do use our ears and um, and you know how annoying uh, noise can be noise in the sense of sounds that is not wanted sound that interferes with with other sounds that you'd like to hear and in fact my real estate agent once told me as I was looking for a house there's nothing worse than and having, buying your house next to the freeway, mm. right? Because of the presence of all of this unwanted sound. So um, in, the, in, the, in the undersea world, it's exactly the opposite where light, anyone who's been a diver or even just kind of stick your head underwater, um, you'll realize that the light is very limited in terms of the distance that it'll propagate underwater. It's really hard to see any great distance. And it's both the fact that the light is absorbed By the water and that there's a lot of particulate matter you know things floating in the water that scatter the light and so it's just not a great sense to um to detect things that are very far away you know and and in the worst case situation you know in really turbid water you can stick your hand in front of your face and you you hardly see it now on the other hand sound propagates incredibly efficiently underwater and um and at low frequencies Sound can propagate essentially without any um, absorption by the ocean. And what this means is is that animals who are adapted to, to live in the ocean make a lot of use of the ambient sound. And um, they make use of the sound to know the setting that they're in. You know, are they in shallow water or deep water? They know the direction. Here's a noisy object, you know, often a direction like the, the waves of the shore. Obviously, if you can hear that, and you can orient yourself. Um, and certain groups of marine animals, like um, dol- whales and dolphins in particular, have adapted fairly sensitive mechanisms to hear sound and also to generate sound. So um, dolphins, for instance, their, their main way of uh, capturing prey, which is mostly fish, is to create a high-frequency click. You know, which is a, just a really short snap. You know, like snapping my fingers, mm-hmm. and then the reflection of that sound off of their prey tells them, you know, the presence of it, and also, you know, they can navigate in at night with no light whatsoever. You can cover the eyes of a dolphin, and it still is perfectly efficient at capturing fish. So, um, so the sound is just a really important part of their world, and and when you look at their the anatomy of their brain, there's much more circuitry. Devoted to processing the sound than there is to processing light, and and of course our brains are exactly the opposite. So um, this means that the the noise environment of the ocean is is very important for the the health of the ocean in terms of the animals being able to to uh, to make use of of you know their natural environment. Now that that's where the concept of anthropogenic sound comes in. In other words, noise that we humans have introduced uh, into the ocean and over the last say uh, 50 60 years you know that the, there's just been a, a really rapid increase in the amount of goods that are transported um, across the ocean you know in container ships or oil tankers and and so we're using the ocean as a highway of commerce and one of the byproducts of that is um, Increasing the ambient sound level, the ambient noise level, especially at low frequency, like a hundred hertz or ten hertz, at the bottom end of our hearing, um, we've really dramatically increased the noise levels in the ocean over the last, say, forty years. And so, it, it's it's a level where it's as if you know you're peacefully living in your house, and steadily, you know, year by year, uh, the surroundings of your house get noisier and noisier until. Um, you know, it's it's really decreased the quality of your life.
0: Yeah, I can relate very, very, very um, much so with uh, the office that I work in. The days that nobody are there versus the days that everybody is there, and just the, the chatter and the background and da 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 da. It's so hard to get work done. So I can imagine the stress that could create in mammals specifically in regards to always being there.
1: Yeah, well, it's it's stress, but it's also, you know, you miss things. Um, mm-hmm. Let's say for baleen whales there there are songs that males produce to try to attract uh, a mate to try to, to impress females well if if those sounds are intended to propagate a certain distance so that you're you know you're actually getting to to be heard by your potential mate you know as the the background din from the shipping goes up then the range at which you can actually be successful in terms of attracting a mate uh, you know goes down now it's it's kind of tricky. This is an issue in a lot of ocean problems, is that we wish we had a baseline.
2: Mm-hmm. We
1: wish we knew a lot more about what things were like 100 years ago, you know, or more. And the problem is, um, you know, we don't have a really good baseline. I mean, this this goes for the presence of various animals, but, but also in terms of the, the ambient noise state of the ocean. And so um, one thing that we found was, though, that, that about 40 years ago, maybe a little bit more, the Navy was um, worried about tracking Soviet submarines off the west coast of the U.S. and also in the Atlantic. And so they installed a series of listening posts, and these were called the, the Sosis Arrays.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And, um, and in fact, I think there was a Sosis Array at one point off of Mendocino, which is not too far mm-hmm. from where you are. And, um, and these listening posts, as they put them in, they needed to know what the ambient noise background was as as a measure of how well they could detect a submarine so you know with your uncle sam's support a lot of effort was put into measuring uh, background noise at various sites along the west coast of the US
0: so these are just listening stations they're not putting sound out they're no, just listening
1: absolutely just listening and and using at the time they were tracking you know submarines and mm-hmm. by by combining the signals from various of the stations you can sort of triangulate into the location
2: mm-hmm. of, of
1: where the submarine would be well um, so but but they produced just fabulous documents in terms of um, documenting over more than a year what kind of changes you'd see in ambient sound at all of these sites and and one of the things that they realized is that there were these sounds made around oh 20 hertz and a hundred hertz that, um that were clearly biological in origin but but at the time they didn't know what they would just give them names like there's the the 20 hertz long is a, a is a tone at 20 Hertz that lasts for a long time and it it turns out now today we know these are made by blue whales mm-hmm. but it was just a mystery mystery of the deep at the time but but from these records um, which were classified in the 60s they've now been declassified because of the you know, the strategic importance of them has gone away. But the value in terms of documenting the background of ambient noise is is really great because now we can go back to 1961, 62, and say, what were the sound conditions like? And, and when we do that, we made a measurement at exactly the same site using a calibrated system. We found that there was about a factor of, of a 10 increase in the power of the, of the ambient noise at these sites, which is significant. In other words, you know, the the perceived, um, you know, sound level had gone up by a factor of 10.
0: Now, this was uh, a site that you studied off of Southern California, San Nicolas Island, yes, I believe?
1: San Nicolas Island, and it was also done at uh, Point Sur, which is just, you know, a bit to the south of you, mm-hmm. and both of these sites had essentially the same result, that The ambient noise increases. There's a doubling of ambient noise about every uh, decade.
0: Wow. So, and I'm sure the the noise is attributed to increased uh,
2: shipping
0: shipping traffic, correct?
1: Yes,
2: yes.
0: I I used to dive at San Nicolas Island. I used to live on Catalina, and we did a dive trip over there. And I remember there was a lot of concern of, of us as far as getting in the water, would they know that we were there if they were going to do any testing because mm-hmm. they do testing. And when we were underwater, we heard some huge bomb go off, I remember, <laughs> and it was like, oh, my God, we've got to get out of here
2: Yeah,
0: just because of the type of, types of things that happen on that island. But I'm sure the noises that you're collecting over long term there were um, from multiple sources, not just the testing that's happening on the island.
1: Well, the, the, um, we were talking about how efficient uh, sound propagates underwater. Mm-hmm. And it turns out that the the noise that you hear a place like San Nicholas Island or Point Sur is really a, a an average of all of the noise sources, all of the ships in the North Pacific. You know, you're literally hearing ships that the sound of the ship is propagated all the way across the ocean base, thousands wow. of kilometers because the sound propagation is so efficient. So it's just kind of a I mean there are sounds of Individual events like a ship going by or someone setting off an explosion or something that are that you can put your finger on it, but but generally that's one of the things about ambient noise is it's just a, a collection of all the noise sources that that you know and in this case across the entire North Pacific Basin.
0: So it's just kind of generally raising up all along. It's just like starting from the bottom and coming up. It's it's magnified everywhere.
1: Yeah. Well, it it just it it kind of. Um, there's also a feature of of the ocean in the North Pacific, which is that it has a waveguide. It, it's called a sound channel that essentially keeps the sound uh, trapped in in this. It's not, I wouldn't call it a surface layer because it's it's most of the ocean depth, but but it means that the sound doesn't dissipate, you know, by bumping into either the surface or the bottom. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's like a, a wave guide is the way that people describe it. It's just like
0: if you were going into a small room that had a lot of flat surfaces.
1: You're, yeah, like you an echo chamber, echo. you so, know, where the sound just reverberates mm-hmm. forever.
0: And those are typically unique underwater features that may also be associated with productivity and perhaps concentrate marine life as well. So that might be... Um, quite a concern for those who study marine mammals.
1: Yeah, well, and, and you would guess that the the whales know about this and, and exploit it, of course. You know, this is why some of the, the signals are really optimized for uh, transmitting a long way. And and maybe, I don't know, this is at risk of, of um, people having low-frequency speakers or whatever, but I, I sent you a sound that's, that's something like a, a, it's a blue whale.
0: Okay, so that's the first track.
1: Yeah so that that would be an interesting one to play, just to give a sense of the kind of sounds that that the whales make
0: sure okay, so stand by here let's let's try this track out
1: Now, there was a sea lion barking there, but
0: so that thumping
1: yeah, that thumping noise, that low frequency thumping it you have to really have good speakers, and I have to say that. My telephone headset didn't do it justice, but I hope that you could hear there's a low-frequency kind of thumping.
0: So that's the blue whale?
1: That's the blue whale. It's just at the lower end of our perception of hearing. Now, there's another track I sent that has ship noise, but with the blue whale included. And, and it may be a little bit too long to play the whole track. It's. But
0: Is this it, the fifth track? Yeah. Let's ship see. Blue, it's titled? Yeah, Ship okay. Blue. So let's try this one as well. Yeah.
1: noise is the sound of the ship and um, and eventually in this track a a blue whale comes along but you can can get a sense of how the ship is interfering with the sound that that the whale is making.
0: I hear it now, okay let's listen
1: Now, that that was made in the Santa Barbara Channel, where there's just a real um, coincidence of lots of whales and lots of ships.
0: I'm not sure how well these are transmitting, because on the the little control here, the needle's not budging much. So I'm not sure how well these are coming up, but we'll keep trying.
1: Okay. So, you know, just as an example, um, I sent a track from a, a gray whale. And we know, of course, the gray whales migrate up and down along the coast, you know, the west coast here. Going up into the Arctic and the Bering Sea to feed, you know, in in the summer, and then coming down to have their calves, uh, you know, in the winter. And uh, if you could play the gray whale, and it, that also gives a sense. It's a sound that's that's made to be uh, transmitted in the shallow waters along the coast.
0: I see. Okay, let's play this. <laughs> Wow. I did not know they made those clicking sounds. Yeah. Did you
1: ever own a pair of bongo drums? Yeah. Well, that's what's inside the gray whale, apparently. So or, those are
0: two very distinct sounds.
1: Yes. There's kind of a burpy sound, and then there's a, a, a bongo kind of sound. And they're, um, as I said, these these animals, the gray whales, like to stay in shallow water. And, and they've come up with sounds that are almost perfectly optimized to, to propagate in the shallow water so that they can hear each other and keep track of each other. They, the, the knocking kind of sound is just, that's very characteristic of what gray whales do. And so, um, you know, in the same sense, though, you, you know, shipping or even in this case, small boats or whatever nearby, you could see how it would be disruptive to that. Mm-hmm. But, but that's just kind of how they keep track of each other.
0: For those just tuning in, we're talking about ambient sound in the ocean. This is Dr. John Hildebrand from Scripps. University uh, in San Diego at Scripps Institution of Oceanography in San Diego, and we're talking about different ambient sounds in the ocean. We just were listening to some gray whale sounds. Now, John, I wanted to ask you about the gray whales as far as, as do they also use sound for the calf staying with the with the mom as far as keeping in touch with each other? Because I know with, with um, elephant seals and sea lions, they do a lot of imprinting when they're on land as communicating to be together, but do whales do yes. something similar?
1: There's certainly suggestions of that, though but, but one of the things is that when the um, the mothers and calves are migrating up and down the coast, they tend to be fairly quiet
2: mm-hmm. because
1: they don't want to attract attention mm. to themselves. Um, you know, in terms of predation from from killer whales. Oh.
2: So, so they
1: tend to be you know more silent, and males tend to be making more of the sound. But that's not always the case. Um, now, I included also a tract from a, a humpback. Yes. Whale. Can we hear that? Yeah,
0: let's bring that on. It's amazing.
1: So, um, in this case, it's a male humpback that's singing. He's trying to attract... A mate, and and we call this humpback song, um, and and you know we hear it almost in a musical way. I mean, we can relate to it as a, as a song. It, it mm-hmm. has a repetition. There are phrases. There are themes that get repeated. There's a overall song cycle, usually somewhere between ten and fifteen minutes, and you know it. It seems like a conscious performance on the part of the whale. You know, a conscious uh, projection of of you know something about their Probably fitness for breeding, um, you know, trying to attract a, a mate. Now, people think about these um, humpback songs. The most famous place to to hear this is near Hawaii, because the um, there is, is one or one set of humpbacks that spend the summer in Alaska feeding and the winter in Hawaii. Sounds mm-hmm. like a nice life, doesn't? Yeah, it? Um, uh, breeding. But but you know, the interesting thing is is that. We also along the coast of California have our own humpbacks and they tend to go back and forth from Central America in the in the winter and then in the summer and and also in some other seasons in the somewhat in the spring and fall they're up along the coast of California and we've recorded them singing up here you know just as well as as down in in Costa Rica that particular song was from Central America but they sing, you know, the same kind of songs when they're up here um, in, the, in the summer months. And, um, but, but it's just, you know, it, it, there's so much put into it in terms of males, you know, they, they have a place, they're stationary, they'll do this song, and they'll do it for days on end. So it must have some real significance in terms of the, uh, you know, the lives of the animals.
0: Now, do they only do it on the breeding grounds? I just read somewhere that some recordings were done actually near Cordell Bank of whale uh, humpback whales making these calls, and I was surprised because I had thought it was only yeah. at the breeding grounds.
1: Yeah, well, that's the the standard theory goes that they only sing on the breeding grounds, but but we've recorded it up here, you know, Southern California, and you know, and I wouldn't be surprised at Cordell Bank as well. So I think it's something that just goes on all year long. And um, maybe there's a more intense effort put in, you know, during the, the winter months, during the, the breeding months. But I think it's just part of, of their culture, you know, part of what they do. Now, and, based
0: on the sounds that, I mean, you were saying earlier that sounds can propagate all the way across the ocean. Is that, are those specific frequ- frequencies? Because would we be able to hear humpback whale calls here in California that are being generated in Hawaii? Or well, is it based on the frequency of the sound?
1: The, the, why, the, the, the songs of the humpback whale are not that um, high amplitude that you'd hear them all the way from Hawaii.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But um, but in in the the reason when I talk about the ships, if you have let's say a thousand ships, you know, spread across the North Pacific, all of that energy kind of adds together to to create this background din, and and also the ships are are a little bit. Uh, Higher amplitude than, than the whale in terms of this, the sound production, and also a little lower frequency. Mm-hmm. So there's a there are these sort of multiple factors. Low frequency propagates better than higher frequency. You know, obviously, if you produce a louder sound, then it'll go further. Um, so so we can hear the humpbacks. If you, um, I mean, if you've ever been lucky enough to be close to a singing one, it, it's quite loud. I mean, if you stick your head in the water near one, or you can actually hear it even in the air close to one. But um, but more on the order of sort of 10 to, to 20 miles would be a, about the limit of where you could still be hearing a, a singing humpback, and that may be matched to the range in which they're interested in attracting a mate. In other words, if if you can swim over to me within a couple of hours, and you know, then then I would be happy, right? Whereas if you're a thousand miles away and it's going to take you days and days to swim over, then you know. I may be wasting my breath to uh, to be singing.
0: Interesting, and the, so the humpback whale sounds are in our listening range as far as what we can hear.
1: They're nicely in our range, yes.
0: But the blue whale was that a, a, a track that had been um, sped up to be able to hear within our no, listening
1: range? That track was raw. That was a real frequency, you know, as recorded by the whale, and it's just at the lower limit of our hearing. Um, and and so um, the the humpbacks will easily go up to a, a kilohertz. You know, the, our, our, the best hearing for humans is about a kilohertz. Humpbacks sing right around that. Blue whales, the highest energy is 15 hertz, which, you know, is just right at the bottom of what we can hear.
0: Now, is it different when you're closer to a blue whale as far as the intensity goes? or?
1: Well, you you actually, if you're in the water or close to a blue whale that's singing, you feel it. Wow. I mean, it's more like a your whole body, you know, feels it as opposed to hearing it. It, it's and and you know if you get sort of rock star kind of subwoofers and and play the sound back you can get that experience
0: Wow so you're we're talking a lot about mammals do we know much about impact of sound or how sound is used by other animals in the ocean like these snapping shrimp is that just their exoskeletons clicking together as they move around or you know, there's a lot of fishes that make a lot of thumping sounds as well. Do we yeah. know much about how they use sound?
1: Well, we, you know, for all of these, we're just starting to learn. The um, the snapping shrimp, actually, it's 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 part of their, um, you know, moving around, you know, pushing the water. They actually do what's called cavitation. They push the water so hard that it actually opens up a little cavity, a little vacuum, and then the, the collapse of that vacuum is the snap. Um but, but I have to think that there's a, an aspect of staying together. you know they're an aggregate, right These shrimp mm-hmm. they're they're not one animal all by themselves. They're living in, in sort of a colony. and that the sound is part of that that you know knowing you know where you are with respect to your colony or you know there's there's maybe a good feeling if you're surrounded by other snaps um, and so you're not alone you know for for an animal that's that's working in in sort of a school like that. Um, but, but, you know, we, we really don't know. There hasn't been good experiments to see, you know, the uses made by snapping shrimp of the sound. Um, fish, fish, on the other hand, we know a little bit more because there's a definite cycle. Mostly the, the, the sounds of fish can be done either by males or females, but um, there's a certain time window and it's quite often it's called crepuscular, where it's it's right at sunset or right at sunrise. But mm. and um, and you see this where just within a window of you know ten minutes before or after sunrise and sunset, where the fish are going crazy, and um, and there are various theories about why they chose that particular time. But but you know, of course, if you're a fish, you don't want to do something that's going to attract attention of a potential predator, mm-hmm. right? So that's a downside of making sound. The upside, though, is that if there's another fish you want to mate with, then, you know, you need to attract them or tell them where you are. Um, then, you know, there's a time you need to to, uh, to make that sound. So this, these crepuscular times right around sunrise or sunset, I guess the theory is is that there's not, you know, it's in that kind of twilight period where the light isn't so uh, strong that the predators are going to get you, Right but but on the other hand you know your mate still might be able to find you it's happy hour yeah exactly <laughs> happy hour in in the fish school so, Wow. Uh, but i think w- there's a lot that we can do and that i hopefully we will do with identifying the uh, the species that make these various sounds and then using the acoustics as a as a tool for assessing the the fish schools one of the things we found in the recording that was made near St Nicholas Island by the navy in the 60s was that it was absolutely full of fish sounds, mm. lots of fish sounds. And when we went back to the same site, um, you know, in nineteen in 2007, there were no fish at all, mm. which is kind of a sad statement. Now, I don't know actually what kind of fish were in the Navy recording. You know, we don't have enough information right now to go back and reconstruct what happened. But, you know, there were fish that present that are no longer present.
2: Interesting.
1: Um, so again, you know, it would be nice if we had baselines on very these various things. It would help us to see how things have changed. And, and so so when I make a, an acoustic recording now, I I really think about it in that mode of there's there's usually some particular species I'm trying to record, a humpback or a blue whale or something, you know, for a particular study. But but I'm trying to archive the sounds as a way of preserving them for for the future. Where all of these other things, like fish and you know other sounds that we can't identify yet, where we could go back and say, "Okay, well, this is what was present at this time in this place." Um, it's like a, in in many ways, you know, we may be it may be one of the best ways that we can record the health of the ocean by by getting a sense for what kind of sounds were out there. There's so many natural sounds, you know, biological sounds that that we might be able to associate that with a particular state of the ocean.
0: John, I'd like to come back to that topic in just one minute. We need to take a short break here at the station. But if you'd hold that thought about this research and this long-term plan, I'd like to come back to that topic in just a few moments. Sure. So please stay on the line. Please stay with us. Okay. Uh, for those of you tuning in, this is Ocean Currents, and you're listening to KWMR 90.5 FM Point Reyes Station and 89.9 in Bolinas. Um, Ocean Currents is the first Monday of every month and today we're talking about noise in the ocean, sound in the ocean with Dr. John Hildebrand. We'll be back in just a minute returning to our interview with John. John, we're back. Thank you for taking a quick little break. My pleasure. I wanted to just go back to this idea about this research. In in collecting sounds now, we may not know what they are now, but maybe in the future we'll be able to interpret them. But also I wanted to ask you, how have you used acoustic listening and sound for studying marine mammal populations? Typically, um, I've talked with people, and we've had people on the show talk about marine mammal from surface observations, and I'm curious how you pair... The listening aspect underwater, the information you collect with that with surface observations and what types of things are you trying to find out through that, the listening.
1: Yeah, well well the first thing that, that um has thing that's happened over the last say ten years is that everybody's computer, you know, you have a computer sitting on your desk, right? And and the computer that you have now is dramatically different than what you had ten years ago. I mean in, in every possible way its speed, its its ability to store data, you know, everything about it. Well, <clears throat> what this has done is it's revolutionized the kind of instruments that we can put together to put out in the ocean, to sense the ocean. The fact that we can have low power and, you know, very um, fast and lots of disk spor- storage on a, on a computer. So, so we've been able to create instruments, and my particular brand of them, are called acoustic recording packages, um, or ARPs, and we've been able to, to to create these ARPs that we can just put out in in sometimes in very remote spots in the ocean and let them record the sound for months and even up to a year, you know, um, you know in in one uh, session. And you know, it's basically a matter of having a lot of discs and a lot of batteries and a and a low power computer. So so with that. Um, you know, we've, we've opened up sort of a new window onto the ocean because in, in days of old, people would go out with, with a, a hydrophone, this is a listening device, and dip it over the side of a boat, and they're looking and they're listening at the same time, but, but they could only be there for an order of, you know, a few hours. And so now we've created these kind of listening stations really almost around the planet um, to give us a sense for, for what's there. And, and so, for instance, as we speak, we have recorders up under the ice in the Arctic. We have recorders out by Hawaii. We have a number of them along the coast of, of uh, California and Washington. We have a recorder in the Gulf of California, and um, and also down in the Southern Ocean. So, um, so it's just this new way of of looking at the ocean with these long-term sound records. So then, when once you've done that, you realize that. The, the, in the recordings, there are events where animals have come within the hearing range of the instrument. And so, so for instance, if if you put a recorder, um, you know, on the, the Southern California uh, continental shelf, you know, for instance, up by Santa Barbara, many many times a day, for, for perhaps half of the time in the day, there'll be some kind of marine mammal within range of the hydrophone, either dolphins or pinnipeds or, or baleen whales. And, um, and of course, we're getting the ambient noise at the same time, you know, the ships and, mm-hmm. and that kind of thing. Now, your first um, challenge in, in dealing with th- these kind of data sets is to look at the recording or listen to the recording and say, I know that this sound was made by, for instance, a blue whale or a humpback whale. And, and the way we collect uh, those kind of comparative data is that we actually go out in a small boat or a larger boat, find the animal, and then make recordings in the presence of the animal. Mm-hmm. And we have to do that enough to where we're comfortable. And, and you know, I, earlier in the show, we played some kind of typical sounds of a blue whale or a gray whale. And so you get to, to know what the frequency of the sounds and sort of the character of the sounds. And before long, you can listen to it and say, oh, yes, of course, that's a blue whale. Mm-hmm. Right. So, um, so we put a lot of effort into making recordings in the presence of various species, and then using those recordings as kind of a comparative catalog to say something about the recordings we've made that are unattended, where no one was there to see what kind of animal it was, <laughs> and and that's been uh, fairly productive, and and we've discovered in some of the the clicks that are made by uh, dolphins that they're very distinctive, um, I mean almost like a a signature you know or a fingerprint for a particular species of dolphin and, and we think this has to do with the actual shape of the the, the sounds that dolphins make are actually made in their foreheads. They have a, um, uh, a sort of fat body in the top of their forehead this is called a melon
2: mm-hmm.
1: and that the sound is actually rattling around inside the, the melon and that that sort of bouncing of the sound produces a very distinctive uh, character to it. And and so we've just sort of discovered this by, you know, making a a bunch of recordings in the presence of. Now, the next step, once you've done that, and then we haven't totally solved this problem. I'd like to say that we would, but it's probably going to be, you know, at least more than my lifetime before we can categorize all the different sounds of all the different animals. Mm -hmm. But uh, but we've made progress. But on those where we do know what kind of sounds they make, we can scan through the record. Let's say you have this kind of a daunting task, really. You have a, a year or more of, of acoustic data in front of you. And and if you just tell the graduate student to sit down and listen to it all, it, it, it really doesn't get very far because, you know, they they like to go home and you know, sleep <laughs> and that kind of thing. And so so we, we really have to train um, computers mm. to find the sounds. You know, these, the volume of data is just so great that we have to have computer software and algorithms to, to find the sounds. And then once you've done that and you've Sort of have to test it, then you can get this incredible snapshot of when the animal was present at this site. And what you see, first of all, is that there are very distinct patterns during the day for most species. There's a certain certain times of day that you'll hear them uh, make the sounds. I mean, we were talking about fish and how fish make sound, you know, near uh, sunset. Well, dolphins, um, many of them when they're foraging they like to forage at night and this is probably because they don't need the the light they have their sonar to to, to actually find the fish and so there's some sort of advantage to them in foraging at at night and um, and so the the prevalence of this echolocation clicks from from dolphins are can be anywhere from i don't know five to ten times more prominent at night than during the day hmm. right? so and that's a discovery we've made just recently because you know, people who are studying dolphins didn't typically go out in their boat at night because you can't see them. Right, right. right. It's dark. Um, so then, the other thing is, is that we're starting to tease out the cycle of where the animals are along the coast. Some of the animals migrate either up and down the coast or offshore and onshore, different seasons. And so, by having a number of these sites, you know, some far offshore and some inshore and some in Northern California and some you know, and down in Mexico, and um, we can start to tease out you know where um, the animals are at, at various times. So this is a, called the seasonality, and that's helping to create a picture of their migrations that we didn't have before.
0: Yeah, it's important for the uh, resource managers as well to get a good picture of where animals are concentrated at times a year in case of um, unfortunate events.
1: Yeah. Well, it, actually, I mean, for for a place like Cordell Bank. If if I could, and I don't have a sensor there, I would love to have one if you know someone who, you know, would like to facilitate that. But, <laughs> uh, but you know, to, in order to say when marine mammals are coming into your sanctuary or leaving, I mean, it's an important thing. That would be know. so
0: interesting yeah. to know. It's kind of like uh, entering and exiting. They are entering the sanctuary. They are leaving exactly. the sanctuary with these sounds. That would well, be really interesting.
1: Yeah, and when they're there so that you need to, you know, think about, you know, their their conservation. So... The other thing we've discovered, which was kind of unexpected, is that within a particular species, like let's say blue whales, for instance, because I've put a lot of effort into this particular one, blue whales in different parts of the planet will make different songs.
2: Mm. And
1: there are boundaries. And and people who study birds are very familiar with this. And the, the phrase there, you know, in bird singing, they call it dialects. So there's a a kind of bird song and you know there's a boundary between different dialects well the same phenomena happens with whale song and so the the west coast of the US is one dialect of mm-hmm. of blue whale which i i would call a california blue whale but um, and then there's a different song that's out in the deep water you know in the central and north pacific now and and i think and and Globally, when we've looked at blue whale song, we find ten different uh, regions, geographic regions, with different song, and and I would like to call these acoustic populations,
2: mm-hmm.
1: meaning that there there must be some greater interaction within a group that's singing the same song as opposed to the adjacent group, probably um, helping them to to know who, which animals are proper to mate with and which ones aren't. Not that not that there's a hard boundary, but that it's you know it's some sort of cohesive group, you know, or population, or if you were in the management business, you would call it a stock, right? So um, so by acoustics, we've actually been able to define the stocks of blue whales somewhat better than people have done before. Because, I mean, despite the fact there was a lot of whaling and people would, would capture the animals and try to describe them, there wasn't really a good system set up for this describing differences mm-hmm. between the animals, I mean, some places they're larger than others, or
2: right. their
1: head is shaped slightly differently. But, but with the acoustics, I think we're getting a snapshot of how the animals are interacting right now, and and we've discovered in the dolphins, at least in the um, Pacific white-sided dolphins along the west coast, that there are stocks, there are differences in terms of the kind of sounds that they make, and these may, you know, translate into these these acoustic stocks.
0: Do you think they ever adapt their sound to change, to fit into another group? I'm thinking of socially, if somehow one whale one with one acoustic uh, pattern and met up with another whale with a different acoustic pattern, would they be like, who are you? And, yeah. And, I mean, the, I'm thinking of the social relations there. It yeah. must be so interesting to see. Yeah,
1: well, there's a lot we don't know about that, but, but there's a really interesting case in um, Australia where... Uh, you know, well documented. There is a, a Western uh, Australia and an Eastern Australia stock of humpback. You know, different sing, different songs. And a case a few years ago, someone noticed that in and among the Western stock of of uh, humpbacks, there was one whale apparently singing the Eastern song. And bizarrely, by the end of the season, all of the the Western uh, animals had switched I to heard the that Eastern story. song. So. The humpbacks are interesting because they have a, a flexibility and a, and a and an attention to to novelty in their songs that most of the baleen whales don't. Blue whales I I don't think would do that. We've seen a stability of the song of blue whales over, you know, more than 40 years mm-hmm. along the coast of California. So
0: we have just about 8 or so minutes left. I want to talk a little bit more about some of the impacts from the sounds. How does the, the raising ambient level of noise in the ocean impact this research that you're trying to do as far as being able to detect these, these changes?
1: Well, we're trying to tease out, you know, one of the, the um, focuses is of our research is how are the animals reacting to um, the fact that, that ambient noise is, has increased, and how do they react to individual events, you know, like a ship going by, or, you know, someone using um, air guns or, or sonar, you know, near the animals. And so that's just um, part of what we're trying to tease out because, you know, our, our understanding of the um, the actual impact is, is rather limited because most of the time where we've had these kind of high-quality uh, recordings, the ambient noise has been quite high. So, I mean, going back to the issue of having a baseline, we mm-hmm. don't have a good baseline. And so... What we have to do is tease out. So, for instance, um, one thing that we think that we can document is that there's an effect of the animal producing a higher source level. In other words, you know, yelling louder
2: mm-hmm.
1: in the presence of higher ambient noise. Mm. And, and in the human world, this is called the Lombard effect. based After a, a French guy named Lombard who noticed that when you go to a cocktail party, everybody's shouting at each other. <laughs> right in in this noisy room you know and, it, and it's a natural response to just being heard as you you shout louder well there's a limit and and what we've seen more or less is that for every decibel you know one db increase in background noise, the animals can compensate for about half of it by sh- by shouting a little louder. not that you know this is this is uh um it's probably a stressful for them as it is stressful for us if you've ever been at a cocktail party too long.
0: Well, this concerns me, too, is if the sound if, levels keep rising in the ocean, would uh, they're going to have to continue doing that as well? And can they?
1: There is a limit. There definitely is a limit. And so so we're, we're trying to document this. And, and the place where we've been trying to work this out mostly is in the Santa Barbara Channel, because there's just a constant flow of ships you know, heading um, right. toward the ports of uh, LA, Long Beach, and also, it's it's a, a really important uh, habitat for humpbacks and, and blue whales and fin whales.
0: Well, was it last summer a couple of blue whales had been killed by ship strikes? Yes. Which we wonder, I mean, can whales hear these ships? Can they hear them? Can they see them?
1: Yeah. Well, they, they probably get kind of used to it being loud. And, um, and and that may be part of the problem is that they're getting habituated to these, these loud sounds. And then, you know... You surface right in front of a a car carrier, and even if they wanted to stop, they couldn't stop. So, um, so it is it is a concern. Um, And you know that particular incident, um, there was a request for the ships to slow down after there had been, I think, three of these ship strikes. There was a request of voluntary, you know, would you please slow down while you're in the Santa Barbara Channel? And we looked at the compliance and saw absolutely zero. No slowing at all, and and the the common wisdom in terms of ship strike is is that if ships are going less than ten knots, then the animals can get out of the way. Mm-hmm. But ships going substantially more than ten knots and kind of twenty plus knots is a is a standard speed in the Santa Barbara Channel. Um, then it's it's more difficult for the whales to get out of the way.
0: Now, John, I also just want to ask. We only have a few minutes left, but. Um, how about the use of sonar, and how do we know about this right now as far as impacting marine mammals? There's been a lot of stuff in the news, the Navy in and out of court, and marine mammals um, apparently showing effects from that. Can you talk about that a little yeah, bit?
1: Yeah, it's it's a controversial uh, topic, but, but it, it comes down to there there are certain incidents where it's fairly clear that the, a particular kind of marine mammal, these are called the, the beak whales, and they're they're deep diving animals, that, that they were, um, that they stranded, which is that they put themselves on the beach, um, coincident with a naval exercise. And this, this has happened not just once, but on in, in several occasions. And so the mystery is why the animals beached themselves, and, and was it some sort of direct physical impact from the sonar, or was it that the animals were reha- reacting behaviorally you know, and then the injury occurred, you know, because of their behavioral reaction. And, and one of the theories has to do with uh, what's, what is essentially a decompression sickness. These are deep diving animals. They're uh, accumulating um, high levels of saturation of gas in their, in their system.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: if they, it's like a diver, you know, surfacing too rapidly where you don't allow the gas to, to come out, um, that the animals might have been, you know, induced to do some kind of behavior like that that then gave them uh, injuries. So it's, it's controversial, it's gone back and forth. There are a lot of studies going on uh, right now to try to, to tease that out, but, but they're very difficult animals to study mm-hmm. because they spend so much time submerged. I mean, in terms of sighting, you know, when you see one of them, you see it's back at the surface, maybe it, it, it gets a couple of breaths, it's at the surface no more than a minute or so, and then it's gone for 20 minutes, maybe 40 minutes, maybe an hour,
0: and we probably know nothing about um, the physical, biological makeup of a whale's brain that's alive because they're alive and they're swimming. We've probably only seen animals that have died and been able to study through necropsies yeah. that way.
1: Well, one um, progress that, that's been over the last, say, five years is that, that we've created um, tags. These are essentially recording devices that we can attach to the animal with suction cups. In this case, it's like, you know, the cups that hold your... Uh, roof rack on your car, and then that allows us to see, get some sort of window into the the submerged behavior of the animal. How deep do they dive, how long do they dive, you know, what's the orientation of the animal as they're foraging, Um, what kind of sounds do they make, So, um, and even, you know, starting to get some information about how many times they've beat their flukes, and hopefully at one point we'll be able to measure their heart rate and all these kind of things to try to tease out what is their natural behavior and then what is the behavior when they're exposed uh, to some sort of intense sound.
0: Now there have been some do- strandings that have happened after a used use of this sonar. And mm-hmm. does that just not stand alone as evidence of impact?
1: Yeah, yeah, sure, but but the but it's trying to understand in in greater detail what was the impact. I mean,
2: uh-huh.
1: you know, did the impact occur because the sound created a physical injury, which, which actually doesn't seem likely based on all the work that people have done, or is it some combination of the behavior of the animal and how it reacts to the sound? So it's, it's a complicated issue. And, and I mean, yes, there are uh, clear-cut associations of these events, and so you know there's, there's plenty of level of, of concern, but, but we haven't really figured out yet how broadly to apply that for instance, to other species besides beaked whales, mm-hmm. right? Or, you know, is it just when the animal uh, um, somehow, you know, is in a certain bathymetric setting where it, it, um, it can't go back down? I mean, it, if you drive it onto a, sh- a shallow water, then, you know, it, it has trouble with um, submerging again to, to clear the, the gases out of its system. In other words, there, there's this complicated suite of, of effects that we, we haven't really sorted out yet.
0: Now, just with a few more minutes left, as a scientist who you've been seeing these changes, you've documented this raise of decibels in the ocean. What are recommendations you have for those interested in conservation and trying to preserve our marine mammals and the the broader marine ecosystem as far as trying to address this large global issue? Is there anything that we can do and other folks that may be listening can do to get involved to to stay up on the topic and to get involved in the conservation aspect?
1: I personally would really like to see the, the shipping industry uh, pay more attention to the noise that, that's being emitted by individual ships. And I think this is starting to happen. There was a, a nice meeting in Germany last year, and a paper has now gone forward to the um, International Maritime Organization, which is sort of the umbrella uh, international organization for shipping. And so I think the first level is to make the shipping industry, or to help them to be aware that this is a problem, they just haven't worried about it in the past. But um, and that's partly because they don't live with their heads in the ocean mm-hmm. the way marine mammals do. So, so I think that's one thing: is just a raise the level of awareness, and then b work for some kind of standard for quieting of mm-hmm. the ships. I mean, in the same way that we don't allow ships to go around the ocean discharging oil. You know, it's just socially unacceptable, and so. Just you as know, we're
0: we, trying to reduce carbon, we should be looking to reduce sound as well.
1: Exactly. It's one of a suite of, of pollutants, in a sense, that, that we should be looking for, you know, the industry to, to, to be, you know, having less impact than it does right now. Um, and, you know, in the, in the same sense, we should look for alternatives. Wherever there are intense sound sources like air guns or intense sonars, we should be looking for ways of doing the same job but without the same sound level. And, and um, so, for instance, in the seismic exploration business, you know, where people are looking for oil, you know, there's a lot of oil underneath uh, Los Angeles, right? And, and one way to look for oil on land is to dig a hole, put a stick of dynamite in a hole and blow it up, right, to, to get sound waves to propagate in the earth. Well, if you proposed to do a seismic survey, you know, along Hollywood Boulevard with sticks of dynamite, that would be socially unacceptable, right? Right. And so what they've done is they developed alternative means. There are these big trucks that kind of bounce up and down, and you know, it's a, it's a lower level sound that you emit over a longer time period. Well, it could be that the seismic industry in the ocean creates a similar technology instead of having you know one big bang. Then they have you know uh, means of of making sound that that's that's more uh, that gets the job done but is more uh, environmentally benign.
0: So it's time to advance our technology. I'm sorry to have to cut you off at this point, but we need to wrap up the show. And I just wanted to thank you very much for giving us such a broad overview, a really nice overview of how animals are using sound and some of the issues that we're facing. And I really appreciate hearing the recommendation about the shipping industry and that there is work being done in that area. I think that's something to keep an eye on for uh, the future. And it's it's interesting. I hadn't thought a lot about how we're mitigating sound and trying to change that. There's been so much work on carbon and reducing carbon. And it's nice to hear that there's efforts as well for reducing this type of sound.
1: Great. So, well, I appreciate you having me.
0: Thank you so much for your hard work and um, appreciate you coming on the show today. Have a good afternoon.
1: Okay. Bye-bye.
0: Take care. We've been talking with Dr. John Hildebrand from Scripps Institute of Oceanography at in San Diego. And we've been talking about ambient noise and sound on the ocean and barely scratched the surface Um, I had a whole bunch of more questions here but I definitely learned a lot I hope you did too thank you so much for tuning in to Ocean Currents today, I'm going to leave you with some soothing coral reef sounds thanks for tuning in listening to Ocean Currents. This show is brought to you by NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary on West Marin Community Radio, KWMR. Views expressed by guests on this program may or may not be that of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and are meant to be educational in nature. To learn more about Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary, go to cordellbank.noaa.gov.